according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, join me turning in your Bibles to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 1. We have uh, been dealing with the first seven verses, and I think uh, we wrapped up these seven verses uh, last week, and we'll get our first glimpse into the Hear My Son, Your Father's Instruction, and Do Not Forsake Your Mother's Teaching, verses 8 and following in uh, the process of this chapter. Before we get started, let's ask God the Father to bless our time together, to set aside distractions, to humble us under the authority of His Word. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, I do thank You. Um, Thank You, Father, for uh, the four children you've blessed me with and the uh, illustrations <laughs> father the uh, the way that a, a child uh, only sort of pays attention while they're kind of listening and not really and they got other things they're doing father and it's uh, uh that's that's uh, insulting and disrespectful and wrong but father how often is that the very thing that we do when we come to bible class and uh, we're only half listening or we're not really paying all that much attention and yeah, we're kind of listening, but we've got our mind on other things. And uh, and really, Father, we just can't wait for you to just stop already so we can go on with what we're doing. Father, that's um, that's horrible. And we don't want our heart to be there in any respect, Father. We want every Bible class to recognize that this could be our last. This could be, it's a grace provision, Father. We want to redeem this time. It's a treasure. And Father, um, we want to give you our full attention. We want to lock our... Uh, focus entirely upon you, fixing our eyes firmly upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So, Father, for this time you've provided, redeem it, use it, uh, take hold of every thought, and uh, teach us from your from your truth. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. In the outline, we've covered Solomon, son of David, king of Israel whole lot of detail there, background on Solomon, background on David, background on uh, how this book was written, particularly uh, as we view the first nine chapters of Proverbs, what I've titled Parental Wisdom, what we uh, see time and time again is the pleading of a father and mother. We're going to be looking at that in verse 8 today. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. All right, so the father has Musar, the mother has Torah. The mother lays down the law, all right? But under the father's musar related to these things. And they're linked, okay? We'll be dealing with that. And parental wisdom and the background on David and Solomon, I think, is vital for uh, setting the table and understanding uh, the entirety of the book of Proverbs. Under point two, we studied what a proverb actually was. And when we are going to study the Mishle Shalomo, then we need to know what's a, what's a mashal, what are the Mishle? Uh, what is a proverb? And why are the terms so interchangeable between a proverb and a parable or a, a discourse or a byword or a taunt? All the different ways that uh, the English brings a mashal into our language. And it's a, it's a variety of different ways. And we realize that a mashal is much bigger than a proverb. And that uh, the study of Mashal, the study of Mishalim, is, um, is a lifelong study and it incorporates a variety of different styles, a variety of different uh, genres of literature. And that's, I think, unfortunate is that in English we limit ourselves based upon the format, based upon the style. And if it's, uh, if it's a short, pithy statement, we call it a proverb, but if it's a longer kind of a story, like uh, the prodigal son or a sower went out to sow, or if it's a story, we don't call that a proverb. We call it a, a parable, for example. And we have distinctions in our thinking because of the form, because of the shape that the literature takes. And that's, uh, you know, it is what it is. That's, that's what our language has done through the centuries. But it's unfortunate because the Hebrew mind would consider all of them mashal, would consider all of them mishalim, whether they were proverbs or parables or taunts or bywords or uh, anything of the sort. 
Anyway, all of this was background as material we went through in main point two. We moved on to main point three, where we presently are. Um, actually, we're on the verge of starting point four. That's all right. Uh, main point three, Solomon begins by explaining what the book of Proverbs will do. This is what Proverbs will do to you. And all of these statements in verses two through six describe what Proverbs will do to you, what Proverbs will do for you the effects of Proverbs in your life, the goal of studying Proverbs, the reason why he wrote it, and the reason why we study it, as well as how to get started. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, you got to start there. you got to start with the humility before him, the recognition that we don't deserve uh, for him to speak to us, for him to teach us, for him to, uh, to uh, bring us up in the nurture and the admonition. How do we deserve that? We don't. All right, so we need to be diligent about how we uh, embrace the provision of God in the Proverbs. So uh, all of these expressions uh, in the in the uh, the you know English infinitives where we have the helping word to right to know to discern to receive and and English uses that little helping word to that tiny little to right that that ridiculous little tiny little two is the helping word in the english that communicates these things to know to discern to receive to give um to understand all right all of those twos is um communicating what this book is going to do the reason why he wrote these proverbs is to or so that the person who reads it will know. And, the, and so I put in this expression in every one of the subpoints. Studying Proverbs equips the reader to. Okay? And if you put those helping words in there, in front of every single one of these two. So the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Studying Proverbs equips the reader to know wisdom and disciplined instruction. Okay? And even that... Studying Proverbs equips the reader too. It seems wordy and it seems, uh, you know, overkill maybe, but I think it's useful. And you could even build on it because it's not just studying Proverbs. It's studying and absorbing and, uh, and adopting a Proverbs mindset in your own application. But studying Proverbs equips the reader too. And that, you want to attach that. Just If you had space in your Bible, you could write it in there. <laughs> in every single one of those twos, all right? So um, we have the purpose here. And this includes um, wisdom and discipline instruction. It includes um, to discern the sayings of discernment. It includes uh, accepting the disciplined instruction for successful living and um, uh, righteousness, justice, and equity, the, the four curriculum courses from verse 3. Finally, then, prudence for the knucklehead, <laughs> right? Verse 4. This is what we were dealing with last week. The uh, subpoint D under this. Studying Proverbs equips the naive youth with prudence, knowledge, and discretion. Studying Proverbs equips the naive youth with prudence, knowledge, and discretion. And I went ahead and combined both halves of the, of the poetry from verse 4. As you look at verse 4, you'll notice that it's in basically two halves. It's a di-stitch. It's a, it's a two-part uh, poem in, in the Hebrew. And so it says, to give prudence to the naive. And then it says, to the youth, knowledge and discretion. And so in both halves of that verse, it's saying the same thing in two different ways, saying the same thing. Um, and so you realize that they're in parallel, that the naive in the first half of the verse is the same as the youth in the second half of the verse. And that the prudence in the first half of the verse is the same as the knowledge and discretion in the second half of the verse. And ultimately what we want to do is be providing prudence to our young people, not just knowledge. Knowledge by itself is insufficient. That was a major point that I made last week. Knowledge itself is insufficient. And that totally obliterates the, uh, the world's system and the world's lie that says knowledge is power. You've got to give knowledge, right? We want our children to have knowledge. And it's not knowledge that helps them to make wise decisions, all right? It's with knowledge and understanding. It's with knowledge and insight. It's knowledge and prudence that not only gives them the information they need, but also the spiritual empowerment to be like-minded with God so that when they're making their choices, they're not just making smart choices, they're making wise choices. They're making humble choices in uh, agreement with the choices that God would have them to make. 
But this is uh, this is totally at odds with the world's methods, right? The world, uh, you know, it's, it's frightening what the public schools are doing in in sex education, for example. And well, we want them to have the information. No, you want to have you want them to have the wrong information. You want to have information shaped by your godless values is what you want them to have. And so when they receive that information shaped by your godless values, then they're going to make the application that those godless values promote. Anyway, we want information shaped by God's values, by His norms and standards, by His criteria, so that they have the prudence and the discretion to to glorify Him with every thought, word, and deed. All right, and so uh, for this, we have the pethy, and we uh, spent quite a bit of time talking about the pethy. He'll come back again, again and again through the chapter. In fact, uh, it's going to come back again in uh, the next paragraph. It's going to come back again when the father and mother are, are pleading with their children and not listen, listen to those hoodlums. All right? There are uh, hoodlums out there, thugs, uh, gangbangers, right? The, the street crowd. And they've got all kinds of, they're called sinners. Uh, if sinners entice you, okay? And we'll have, to, we'll have to deal with this. We'll have to have some fun with this because why does the Bible talk about sinners that way? <laughs> Isn't everybody a sinner? Right? Jesus talks about sinners. Let them be like tax collectors and sinners. You know, when the Bible uses the phrase sinners, what does that mean? We're all sinners. Every human being is a sinner except Jesus. Well, when it uses the term sinner in, in a context like this or when Jesus is teaching the Gospels and so forth, the idea of a sinner is someone... We'll, we'll talk about it. I'll, I'll give myself away there. But here's the point, because I'm not in those verses yet. <laughs> I'm still talking about the pethy, the simple. The simple, the simple is the one that we're trying to train in the nurture and admonition of the Lord so that they develop God's wisdom and that they don't become the fool, so that they don't become the, uh, the scoffer. And there is a context here whereby they progress from simple to, to, uh, to even worse, all right? And uh, we want to make sure that they don't, they don't get that far in the, in the point. And the enticements that come in verse 10... Those enticements are the patha enticements that are designed to catch the pathi. All right, the cognate form of that verb patha uh, that is to entice or to seduce or to. Um, it's almost like. Do we have anything like that? If if gullible is the noun, there's no verb for gullibleize, right? Um, but maybe we need to make one. If it, we, we need to have a verb that connects to the noun in such a way that it's unmistakable, like pethy and patha, all right? To entice, to seduce, to lure. And uh, the, the gullible, the pethy, is seducible, is gullible, is... is uh, anyway, we struggle, I struggle, uh, to, to try to find a noun that will connect with the verb that way the way that patha and pethi do. So anyway, last week we spent some time with pethi, number 6612 is the strongest concordance. Nothing wrong with being pethi. In fact, there's a blessing for being pethi. The, the blessings of, of pethi, I call it sanctified gullibility, is that the trusting child, the trusting child will swallow anything, which means that God-fearing parents training them up in the scriptures can just pour doctrine into them like they're sponges. And they are sponges, and they will just soak it up. Okay, and this is the thing that I shared last week. You know, you homeschool your kids, and you realize pretty quickly that they're just gullible. They'll believe anything. You, you sit them down and say, in their first ever kindergarten class, you're talking about history, and you say, you know, the first president of the United States was a Bolander, and really, you know, wow, I didn't know that. You know, George, you know, not George Washington, but whatever. You can make up all kinds of stuff, and they will believe you. Okay, and then and then pretty soon you you anyway I had fun with my kids when they were smaller, but you learn how to you train them to not be so gullible, while at the same time you just love the fact that you love them, they love you, they're trusting, they will swallow anything you dish up, and you want to foster that, you want to foster that um, that trust. They know they can trust everything you say. And even when you're joking, they know you're joking and they learn to tell the difference, right? They know that you're not deliberately lying to them or misleading them or things of that nature, but you're training them to, to spot the, the, the teasing and the lying and the, not the lying, but the teasing and the joking and the, and the so forth. Because when the, when the world's out there seducing them, it's not, a, it's not a tease. It's not a joke. They're not just kidding around, okay? 
They're not just kidding around when they're, when they're patha seducing the, the pethi. I think that's, uh, that's key. Information alone is not the solution. Information alone is not the solution. The world would tell you that it is. Knowledge doesn't just do it. Da'ath doesn't just do it. Gnosis doesn't just do it. Okay? Da'ath is Hebrew. Gnosis is Greek. Um, knowledge puffs up. Okay? Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. That's huge. Knowledge by itself. They say, well, knowledge is power. Well, yeah, but knowledge is also dangerous. Okay? If you know the wrong thing or you know the right thing and you're using it in the wrong way. Knowledge alone is not a solution. So, uh, and there's a reason why, as it says here, uh, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge and discretion. And like the definitions there, prudence is defined as knowledge plus discretion. If you can instill knowledge and discretion into your young person, then you are developing prudence. And that's what the naive needs. That's what the youth needs. Knowledge plus discretion equals prudence. If you want more on that, we have all the terminology that we gave back in the introduction, in the introductory material. In Proverbs, the naive is not the fool, but can quickly become the fool if they don't embrace the Lord's protection for their simplicity. And uh, indeed, there is a progression. Uh, This crowd is going to start to uh, lure them, is going to start to celebrate their uh, simplicity. You know, you look down at verse 22, how long, O pethi, or the plural, um, pethi is singular, how long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? In other words, how long will you love being pethi? You're supposed to grow out of it. Uh, And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing. If you've stayed pethi too long, you become the scoffer. If you stay the scoffer too long, now you're the fool. Okay, and fools hate knowledge. There's the progression, and uh, we don't want any part of that. Now there is a protection for the simple. Yes, God protects the simple. Psalm 116 talks about this in verse six. Yes, He protects the simple. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low, and He saved me. Okay, yes, He does that because that's just the kind of God He is. But <laughs> are you going to tempt the Lord? Are you going to uh, put the Lord your God to the test? See, remember the way the devil, how the devil tempted Jesus and say, well, just throw yourself off of here. He said he'd protect you. You know, are you going to claim this verse and say, well, God said he'd protect the simple, so I'll just stay a, a simpleton all my life. If I never grow up in doctrine, well, then God will just have to take care of me the whole time. <laughs> Think again. All right. He does preserve the simple, but he also commands you to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So you can very quickly go from being simple to being a a rebel, to being a scoffer and a fool because you are defying the Lord God that commanded you to grow up, to grow in His grace and knowledge. Studying Proverbs never ends. This is sub-point E, also from last week. Studying Proverbs never ends. This is the side trip that we have here. There's a a side trip in the midst of this. In the midst of all of these twos, to know, to discern, to receive, to give, to understand in verse 6. But in between verse 4 and verse 6 is this side trip. It's a a parenthesis, if you will. Um, Interrupting the train of thought... Uh, before wrapping up the final objective of, of uh, studying Proverbs, uh, the recognition is, yes, we start the youth in Proverbs, but they never leave it. They never get out of it. I don't care if you've been saved 90 years, right? Uh, or whatever, okay? I think in this room it's probably, I don't know, Ethel or Valentina. One of you's probably been saved longer than everybody else in this room, all right? But, okay, you got saved when you were a, a teenager and now you're what you are, okay? That's a long time to be saved. So are you done with Proverbs yet? Never. Never. The learning never ends. Studying Proverbs never ends. It may start in one's youth, but the blessings of Proverbs sustain believers of all ages. And uh, my favorite story was Mrs. Box, Mary Box at, at Buckner Villa. She's with the Lord now, but <clears throat> years ago when I go to visit her, she was 105. 105 years old. She uh, went to heaven uh, a week short of her 106th birthday. So she was nearly 106. She was 105, and she'd been saved since she was 10 years old. 
Okay, she got saved in a Methodist church. And, uh, you know, Methodists had a good gospel 95 years ago. <laughs> and uh, she got saved in a Methodist church at the age of 10 and had been walking with the Lord for 95 years. Can you imagine? Well, trumpet pending. Yeah, I don't hope to be here that long, but trumpet pending. Uh, the blessings of being with the Lord for 95 years. Okay? But studying Proverbs isn't going to end. You're not going to just dismiss that and say, well, that's for babies, that's for children. No, the, the wisdom of God is infinite. We should be in it time and time and time again. I think Psalms and Proverbs gives us the devotional blessings we need to take the, the Torah, to take the law, to take the prophets, to take all the doctrine and all the, all the theology from the rest of Scripture. All right. And there's uh, Proverbs 1.5. Studying Proverbs equips the reader to discern the mysteries of life. Proverbs, figures, and riddles. Proverbs, figures, and riddles. And I think when we contrast verse 2 with verse 6, some of the vocabulary is redundant and some of the vocabulary is rather unique. And when it says to understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles... I think we've, we're going beyond uh, spiritual life wisdom, and we actually start to see the benefits in secular life as well, the mysteries of life, as we describe it here, the, the conundrums that the world may wrestle with, the mysteries of life that believers and unbelievers alike ponder with respect to why are things the way that they are and different components there. And if the unbeliever wants to philosophize, let him philosophize. How about we respond with some wisdom? We can respond with Proverbs in divine viewpoint. And uh, particularly, hey, you know, they can put whatever. They'll put their Aristotle up on display or their uh, whoever. Um, maybe they're, uh, you know, into other philosophers, modern philosophers or what have you. Okay, fine. Um, put up your postmodernism. I'll put up my Bible. And we'll see, <laughs> not only what makes more sense, all right, but we'll see uh, the value and the benefit and the effect to all of these things. Just lay them out there. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's marvelous. Things which I have not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man. And you talk to, uh, you talk to someone that does not have a grounding in the Word of God, and they've got all these puzzles, you know, the meaning of life and why are we here and what, you know, different, different things. And just say, you know, I don't know why we're here. We're here to glorify Jesus Christ. I'm here. I'm saved unto good works. Prepare beforehand that we should walk in them. And uh, they may not accept what I tell them, but they're going to identify that, that I've got a grounding and a stability based on my convictions of Scripture. And they're, they're drifting, they're tossed, they're, they're just floating around and, and no matter what they embrace in, in terms of a personal philosophy, um, it's not grounded in an objective standard of absolute righteousness. In any event, I think Proverbs is a blessing for that. Finally then, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. I almost want to stop and just give a... 30-week lesson on the fear of the Lord. The fear, we're going to see it again. It's going to come up again and again and again and again throughout the book of Proverbs. How we fear Him. How we have reverence before Him. We better be humble before Him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. Start there and never leave it. <laughs> All right? You know, do some, are some Christians saved? Here's the flip side of what I was just illustrating. Are some Christians saved too long? So, well, how could that be? Pastor, you just got done telling us about Mrs. Box and what, how great it was that she'd been saved for 95 years. Here's what I mean by this. Saved for so long that they have forgotten their former manner of life. They've forgotten the grace that saved them. They've forgotten the joy of their salvation. They have departed from the fear of the Lord. And they've kind of adopted this mentality that is not so fearful any longer. They've kind of, they've, they've grown over-familiar and I think it's an occupational hazard. I think it's a snare. We, we are intimate. We are in fellowship. We have fellowship with the Father and the Son. But let's not ever become so intimate, reclining on His bosom and whatnot, that we, uh, that we lose the reverence, that we lose the fear. See, I don't believe the Apostle John ever lost his reverence, even when he was reclining on Jesus' breast. All right? 
So Job 28, 28, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, James 1, 21. Let's review these. Did we look at these last week? No. Okay, well, then let's look at these. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. Start there and never leave it. Job, the book of Job, the oldest book of our Bible. Wisdom literature before there was any other scripture written. Hmm. <laughs> There's so much in this. Where do I pick up on this? All the doctrine of this chapter. And he had no Bible, no law, no Old Testament, no Levitical priesthood. Living in the uh, patriarchal age after the flood, before the call of Abraham. The chapter begins, Surely there is a mine for silver and a place where they refine gold. I've been done a lot of mine studies. And that's what I call my study at home is the mine. It's where I dig up all the doctrine and prepare it to, to, to feed you guys with it. There is a mine for silver and a place where they refine gold. So there's a place that you dig it out, but then you've got to refine it. Iron is taken from the dust. Copper smelted from the rock. Man's expected to do this. We take what God has provided and we make use of it. We adapt it. We, we, we shape it. We put it to a productive value. Man puts an end to darkness and to the farthest limit he searches out the rock and gloom and deep shadow. That's the exploring spirit of humanity. We, if if uh, nobody's seen it yet, we want to we see it. We want to be the first. If it's dark, let's put some light in there. He sinks a shaft Far from habitation, forgotten by the foot, they hang and swing to and fro, far from men. The earth, from it comes food. You know, you're growing crops, but underneath it is turned up as fire. When you, dig, when you burrow down into it, dig down into it, mine down into it. Its rocks are the source of sapphires, its dust contains gold. This is the, the blessings of what God has provided, but he didn't just, you know, you've got to dig for it, you've got to work for it, you've got to pull it out. It's part of the responsibility of humanity. The path no bird of prey knows, nor has the falcon's eye caught sight of it. Proud, proud beasts have not trodden it, nor has the fierce lion passed over it. Anyway, we'll get to this. I'm, maybe after Proverbs we'll teach Job. I would love to teach the book of Job someday. He puts his hand on the flint. He overturns the mountains at the base. He hews out channels through the rocks. His eye sees anything precious. He dams up the streams from flowing, and what is hidden he brings out to the light. This is, uh, this is what we're blessed to do in the image of God. He's the creator, but we harness his creation. We adapt it. We, we draw power from it. I mean, yeah, a river flows. Great. That's great. But what if, what if we harness the energy from that river? What if we divert the water? What if we use it to fertilize our fields and, and, and all the, the blessings there? To me, this is, this is why the environmentalists want everything in its pristine created state. They don't want to accept the fact that we are in his image and we are commanded to subdue the earth as we rule the earth. So in their mindset, dams are bad because there is no God and we're not as in, his, in his image. All right, Dams are bad because, uh, because we're, uh, we're ruining this, uh, this evolution uh, paradise they, they're trying to promote. Anyway. So, in all of this, um, this is... Pretty extraordinary. Talking about mining and damming and all this, you know, technological stuff for a, you know, the, the world would tell you Job was a caveman, right? Living back in primitive times. I think Job was brilliant. The, the, the patriarchal age, Noah and the generations after Noah were absolute geniuses to, uh, you know, think about the pioneer life after the flood. And they, uh, they rebuilt civilization after the flood in these early generations. And yet... Where does wisdom come from? Okay, you look at verse 12, where can wisdom be found? Where is the place of understanding? Can we dig deep enough to find God? Can we dig deep enough to find wisdom? Is wisdom found? Is wisdom a crop? Does wisdom come from the earth? Does wisdom come from the animals? Does it come from that? Where does wisdom come from? This is why secular science will never find wisdom. All right, where is the place of understanding? It's at the feet of Jesus. It's at the throne of God. <laughs> okay? Job knew this. David knew this. Mary knew this. Mary and Martha. All right? Um, sitting at the feet of Jesus. 
Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me. The sea says, it's not with me. Pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it, nor can silver be weighed for its price. Even the most precious of metals, that which becomes a medium of exchange, cannot purchase chachmah, wisdom. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in the precious onyx or sapphire. Gold or glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for articles of fine gold. Anyway, some other contrasts here. Coral and crystal are not to be mentioned. The acquisition of wisdom is above that of pearls. The tremendous wisdom. I mean, look what Job understands in terms of minerals and metals and gemstones and, and uh, what, what an economy they had. And this is pre-Abraham time. Third millennium, probably, uh, yeah, third millennium B.C. Um, and the commerce between uh, the land of Ethiopia here and the land of Ur. Um, or the land of Uz, the land of Uz. Abraham was from Ur. Where then does wisdom come from? Where is the place of understanding? Thus it is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the sky. Are you really talking about zoological birds there? Abaddon and death say with our ears, we have heard a report of it. (laughs) Okay. What an angelology that he understands Abaddon and death. God, God understands its way and he knows its place for he looks to the ends of the earth <coughs> and he sees everything under the heavens. When he imparted weight to the wind, do you know wind has weight? When, um, and he meted out the waters by measure, how much water is in the ocean? Okay, God knows. He's got all the measurements. When he set a limit for the rain and a course for the thunderbolt, then he saw it and declared it. He established it, also searched it out. See, in other words, he has a storehouse for his wisdom, and it's with him. He's reserved that for himself. And to man he said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. If you want to access this storehouse, okay, if you want gold, if you want water, if you want all these other things, there's places for them and you can go find them. But if you want wisdom, you've got to start with the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. The link between wisdom and understanding. It's like Proverbs right here. Okay? A thousand years before Proverbs. You know, we think about Proverbs as a thousand years before Christ. Job is at least a thousand years before Proverbs. Probably more. All right. Fear of the Lord. Start there and never leave it. And Job again took up his mashal and said... You see in chapter 29 and verse 1, these are Proverbs. We don't think of them as Proverbs, but this whole thing from 27, nope, even earlier than that. Uh, Where does Job start? 26 in his response. And then in 27, he continued his mashal and said in verse 28, he's still talking. In in chapter 29, he's still talking. Job, uh, Job again took up his mashal and said, Job is communicating mishalim what we would call proverbs or parables or discourses or um, its wisdom is what it is. Memorable sayings containing wisdom. All right. Ecclesiastes 12.13. If I'm not careful, I'll read all of Job 29 too. <laughs> That's a good chapter also. Uh, let's go to Ecclesiastes. Here's Solomon getting ready to die the sinner to death. You know, the wisest man who ever lived in the end of his life was a train wreck. Two thousand years before trains. <laughs> All right. More than that. But his, uh, the end of his life, and I realize scholars debate, is it Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, or Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Is it even Song of Solomon, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes? You know, when you take these three books, what order did he write them in? And how do you match the composition of these books with the narrative of his life? From David's death to becoming king to dying at the end. Anyway, as I read it, as I go through 1 Kings, and as I evaluate the life of Solomon, I think this is is his end. All right, this is his end. Song of Solomon is early or mid. Okay, he's got a small harem at that point, sixty wives and 
and so forth. He hasn't quite reached the thousand status yet that he finally reaches to. Okay? So I put it Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. That's my order for the, the writing of those texts. But at the end of Ecclesiastes, we see here, the conclusion when all has been heard is this. And you've got basically 12 and a half chapters of human viewpoint. The Holy Spirit inspired Solomon to compose what happens to a believer when you depart from divine viewpoint. What happens to a believer when you abandon the fear of the Lord, when you stop walking in humility, when you stop using divine norms and standards? If all you're going to do is live your life according to your secular wisdom, according to your understanding, well, there is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is death. Okay, And then, um, I don't know, some, some people think that Ecclesiastes is depressing. I love it. All right, because if I'm ever in a gloomy, depressed mood, go read that. Okay, <laughs> Think, I better reorient. Okay. It is depressing. Of course it's depressing. It's what your life is like if you're not using the Word of God. You're not living in truth. It's human viewpoint all throughout. All right? You know? Anyway. Is money the answer to everything? Well, that's what it says. In chapter 10, I think it says that, that uh, money is the answer to everything. So, 1019, men prepare a meal for enjoyment, wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. There you go. Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. This is, this is what happens. And if you think it can't happen to you, why do you think that happened to Solomon? He's the wisest man that ever lived. Of course it could happen to you. It could happen to me. It could happen to any of us. Just stop living in the Word of God and see how dark your life gets and how quickly it gets there. Nevertheless, it's kind of interesting. He finally surrenders here at the end. And um, look how sad he is in this chapter. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. For him, old age is evil. Old age, there's no delight. It's like uh, Jacob before Pharaoh. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my sojourning, nor have they attained to the years of my fathers. Jacob was 147 years old and disappointed when he stood before Pharaoh. And he says, before the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are darkened, clouds return after the rain, you know, your vision decreases in your older years. In the day that the watchmen of the house tremble and mighty men stoop. So, um, fears. You're afraid of things in your older years you weren't afraid of when you were younger. The grinding ones stand idle because they're few. What happened to your teeth? All right. Those who look through windows grow dim and the doors on the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low. We can't really hear anymore. The one will arise at the sound of a bird and you're getting up at all hours of the night and the tiniest little noise wakes you up. And, you know, during the day you can't hear anything, but at night you hear everything and you can't sleep. Men are afraid of high place and terrors on the road. Almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper drags himself along. The caperberry is ineffective. They didn't have Viagra back then. All right. Caperberry. You could do a study on that. Uh, man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about the street. That's a bummer. You don't get to attend your own funeral. Um, remember him. Before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. Now, this is, uh, these are metaphors, but they're metaphors that reflect a reality. It's not mythology. This is God, the Holy Spirit, inspired this. The silver cord, all right? What is it that keeps your soul tied to your body? What is it that keeps your soul just from flying out into the universe? All right. The pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel of the cistern is crushed. Dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. What a pathetic end to his life. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. And he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher also sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. 
The words of wise men are like goads and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned, the writing of many books is endless and the excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. Put that verse on the outside of your study. (laughs) Well, he's starting to approach repentance in those verses. Not quite. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is this. Fear God. See, he lost that. He lost that, and he's lamenting it here on his deathbed, that he lost the fear of the Lord. Fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God, and why is he talking about God? Where's his intimacy? Why is he not talking about Yahweh? Why is he not talking about, um, you know, Yahweh gave him a name at his birth, beloved of the Lord. What a pathetic end to Solomon's life. God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. All he has is he knows that he's going to answer to God. Well, never leave it. Don't be a Solomon. Finally, James. James one twenty one. I think the book of James is uh, Proverbs for the church. The book of James is wisdom literature in the Greek canon. In the fear of the Lord. Verse 19 says this, You know, my beloved brethren, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. This, this is the humility required. This is the nature of the, of the body of Christ, or as we should be um, manifesting the body of Christ by His design. Quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. What are we called to do? What are we called to exhibit in the Christian way of life? Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. In other words, why do we start every prayer or every Bible class with prayer? How are you going to grow in the Word of God if you're carnal? How are you going to be humble to receive the Word if you're carnal? Where's your fear of the Lord if you're sitting here in in a Bible class, mad at your, your wife or mad at your pastor or mad at the world or whatever, those idiot drivers on 183, all right? How are you going to, if you're a carnal, what good are you in Bible class? You might hear some information. You might get some knowledge. But are you getting discretion? Are you getting prudence? Are you getting the understanding with your knowledge? So, putting aside all filthiness and all the remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. And I believe that that humility is the key. It's the, it's the parallel to the, the, the fear of the Lord from Proverbs. It's the, it's the in, essential ingredient that not only receives the word of God as a possession, but receives the word of God implanted. Not, not, that's bigger than just a possession, you can have something but not have it implanted, right? You know, I have a phone in my pocket, but I don't have a phone implanted. How weird would that be? Okay? I love implanted. The language of implanted. How, how, you can't get more internalized than internalized, right? Than implanted. It's got to be there. Receive the word implanted. Colossians says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. It's got to be implanted. Don't just let it be in one ear and out the other, okay? Implanted. That's why we talk about receiving it, uh, accepting it, accepting that discipline where you embrace it, you absorb it, you adopt it, you claim it. It's yours. Receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Able to save your souls. Now, save right? Do this exercise every time. Save. Three different ways that save is used. Is this talking about not going to hell when you die? Is this talking about your phase one salvation where you trust in Christ, receive eternal Christ? No, you're past all that. This is phase two salvation. This is where, see, in, in phase one, you're saved from the penalty of sin, right? That wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So you're saved from the penalty of sin. I was saved from the penalty of sin back in 1973. But what is this 
saving your souls. This is where you're saved from the power of sin, from the very power of sin. And there's a temptation there. There's, but you've got the Word of God implanted. And that's what's going to save you from the power of sin. The temptation comes along and it's got no power over you because you've got a greater power inside. The, he that is within you is stronger than he that is within the world. How about the Word of God that's within you? All right, that's what's able to save. Able to save. And we're going to have this coming up again and again. The first nine chapters in parental wisdom. What's the benefit of wisdom? What's the benefit if you embrace her? What will she do for you? What does wisdom do if you embrace her? She saves you. She saves you from the snares, from the temptress, from the the strange woman, right? She saves you from the the life of the fool. She saves you from all the pains of, of bad decisions in life because you've got the Word of God implanted, which is able to save your souls. Okay? We'll have more on this, but I think if we understand it, at least on this basis, we can proceed. I love the idea, though, of able. You've got to warn about able. Able doesn't mean automatically does it okay it doesn't say receive the word implanted which automatically all day every day saves your soul no matter what you do no it is able to save your soul but it doesn't always why because we don't always apply it we don't always unite the word of god with faith we don't unite the word of god with faith there's no profit to the word of god even though the word is profitable god's word is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, instruction, righteousness. It's profitable, but we don't always profit. See, there's that able again on the attack to the end of profitable. Okay? Profit able. Maybe that helps. Let's just stress the able part of this. It is profit able. Here it is able to save your souls. God is able. The Word of God is able. Realize that we often reject what his word is able to do we often quench the holy spirit grieve the holy spirit resist the holy spirit we always suppress the truth in unrighteousness when we take those kind of actions is the word still able well yeah it's still able but it just doesn't (laughs) okay we're going to see that we saw it last week in isaiah god is able to hear you but he chooses not to he's able to hear but he does not listen We saw the verse, he says, my arm is not so short that I'm not able to save. I'm able to save, but I'm not going to because you have turned from the Word of God. So that able to save your souls. When you see able, realize, wait a minute. Anytime there's able there, we're dealing with a concept that is left in our application for our volition. Are we going to humble ourselves and walk with God or are we going to be prideful and do our thing? And And based on choices we make we reap what we sow that's the law of sowing and reaping god will not be mocked you know he's able to save your soul but if you're doing that god will not be mocked so the fear of the lord is the beginning start there and never leave it point four like i say i thought about taking the next eight weeks just doing a fear of the lord thing but i think it'll come up again and again and again throughout the proverbs and i'd rather let the, the flow of proverbs enforce or reinforce the uh, significance of fear so let's get point four now and move on to verses eight through 19 parents must instill divine norms and standards into their children because other influences of life are deadly. Parents must. If you don't, someone else will. If you don't, someone else will. There, are, there is no shortage of influences out there. This cosmos system is designed to conform. This ion is designed to conform. So if we do not instill these values, if we do not train up a child in the way he should go, if we do not discipline him in the nurture and the admonition, the, the, the musar, the disciplined instruction of the Lord, then uh, there will be other influences that will shape them, starting with their own sin nature, okay? which you gave to them in procreation, so you can just blame yourself. <laughs> All right? The sins of the Father, okay? And uh, they, they have that within them. That's a part of who they are. 
So we must instill divine norms and standards into their children because other influences of life are deadly. And that includes their friends. That includes the, uh, the, the street thugs, uh, the sinners who entice you. Say, come, lie, come with us. Lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Ooh, that sounds fun. It is fun to the carnal mind. It is fun to the darkened mind. There's no reason not to. If you, are, uh, if you are of this cosmos, if you're of this world, might makes right. Hey, take it. Why not? There's no reason not to if you're your own God. Okay? If, uh, anyway, we'll talk about this because this is uh, throw your lot in with us. We shall have one purse in verse 14. This is the cooperative endeavors of, of the, uh, the gang mentality. There are other influences, and we want no part of it. We want no part of it. So hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. You pound it into them. You pound it into them. You pound it into them. Where they've heard it a thousand times. They've heard it a hundred thousand times. They've heard it and heard it and heard it and heard it. Because guess what? A day comes and they leave your home. Okay? And if it's not ingrained into their soul, <laughs> you know, I can still hear it. I can hear it, I can hear it, I can hear it. Forty years later, things that my parents pounded into me. And they pounded hard because I'm, I'm thick, okay? I can still hear my dad's voice saying, 10,000 years from now, what difference will it make? Okay, I won't, I'll never forget that because he said it a thousand times. 10,000 years from now, what difference will it make? Okay, meaning, you know, think beyond this life. Think eternally. Think with a spiritual mindset. Okay, so uh, it starts with hearing, but then not forsaking. And I've got eight minutes left, so we're not going to get very far with it. Hearing and not forsaking, they're, they're, they're tied together. Hear and do not forsake. Every time Doug holds his camera up, I want to smile. <laughs> He's taking a picture of the notes, yeah. All right. Hear and do not forsake. See, it's, it's not enough just to hear it. <laughs> it's not, not enough just to hear it because what happens if you hear it and forsake it? You know, I think back to my last sin, my last 10 sins, my, you know, whatever. I didn't commit those sins because I hadn't heard the truth. I knew better. I knew what the Word of God said. I knew what the commandments were. I'd heard that. I just forsook it. Every time I commit a sin, it's not because I didn't hear about it. It says, hear, keep on hearing, hear continuously, and do not ever, not now, not this week, not for the rest of your life, ever forsake your mother's teaching. We have Musar for instruction. We have Torah for teaching or Law, really. Okay. Um, Shamat, to hear. The, the, the abandonment. Oh, the neglect and the abandonment and the, the tragedy of forsaking. Oh, my goodness. What a... What a... It's, it really is. It's a sad thing to be forsaken, right? To be abandoned, to be neglected. Uh, the world, of course... Um, there's all kinds of abandonment in this world. Kids are abandoned. Women are abandoned. Marriages are abandoned. Uh, I mean, why do we have so many orphans? You know, it, there's just this, this whole world has abandonment because this whole world is all about self. It's all about promoting I and I will, I will, I will. An imitation of Satan is I will, I will, I will. And so if you're all about the I will, I will, I will, and then other people don't matter, who needs them? You only need them as far as they benefit you and then you use them and, and dump them you know that's that's the world's mentality right you understand i'm illustrating the world's mentality i'm not preaching that <laughs> all right but forsaking and this is why it's so precious when god says i will never leave you nor forsake you <laughs> we've got scriptures that promise us these things and and that's 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 tremendous joy there's there's unbelievers that got saved and for the first time in their life they learn about a father who loves them they never had that in earthly life 
All they had in earthly life was some tyrant, some brutal guy, some guy with anger and, and uh, violence and all kinds of horrible things. But then they learn about a Father in heaven who loves them, and that's, 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 that's powerful. That, just that whole idea gets all kinds of folks saved. In any event, hear and do not forsake. And we have a parallel. Not only is it here in verse 8, it's going to come back again in chapter 6. My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. And there it's uh, observe instead of hear. And I think the parallel between those imperatives is vital. And then it's a mitzvah, commandment, instead of, um, instead of what we have here in verse 8 with uh, musar. And then, uh, but then the forsake and the teaching is the same for mother there. The Torah of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. Right? This, this has to be your adornment. You say, uh, I'm going to look goofy with a string tied around my finger. I have so many strings tied around my fingers because I keep forgetting stuff. And now I can't remember what the strings tied around my finger is supposed to mean. All right? Well, the whole point, though, in having Scripture memorized, having these things... Uh, where it adorns your very being. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about earthly clothes on your physical body. We're talking about the spiritual clothes on the body of your soul. Shama. Sometimes I think, uh, don't I say, uh, if there's 20 Greek words, this, this is one of the 20 Greek words you need. Uh, I think every believer, every church-age saint ought to know agape and phileo. Every church-age saint ought to know charis. Every church-age saint, there's about 20 Greek words that I think, you know, ballpark 20, and I think, I don't care if you're a pastor or, or not a pastor or whatever, I think every church-age saint ought to have a, a handle on some of those expressions and what they signify. In the Hebrew, maybe maybe a dozen. Maybe a dozen Hebrew terms, and shama is one of them, if not number one. Shamat is definitely in the top dozen, the top three. Shamat. Shamat. S-H-A-M-A apostrophe. I remember when I was, I was five years old and uh, sitting in church next to my mom because we were always in a row. Early we were in a row. Dad, mom, me, Mary. Later they got shuffled a bit with the younger kids and then I got thrust to the end. But, but early... And I would glance over and I would see my mother's notebook and she had this word, Shama. She had written on her notebook. And uh, when she filled her notebook, like you just filled your Life of Christ notebook and you get a new notebook and, and so forth, she would get a new notebook and she would write Shama on the top of that new notebook. Uh, wow, that meant something to her. I didn't know what it meant, but now I do. Okay, To hear, but it's to hear with the humble expectation of making application of what you're hearing, all right? Um, remember, James talks about don't be just a hearer only, but be a hearer and a doer. Shamak has built in the idea that you are hearing and you are doing, that you are hearing and that you are obeying, that you are hearing and you are paying heed. Maybe pay heed is a better rendering to where, you know, because sometimes you hear, but you're not really listening. All right? Here you are hearing and paying heed and you are humble before it and you are recognizing that this is something you have to obey. That's Shamat. 30 times in Proverbs, 1,158 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. Do you know how many Hebrew words show up more than 1,000 times in the Bible? You know, other than the and, you know, you get certain pronouns and articles and prepositions and whatnot. Those don't count. I'm talking about real words of substance like a verb that occurs, you know, a thousand times. There's not many. This is a huge emphasis throughout the Old Testament that we are expected to hear. God himself promises to hear when we call upon him, when we pray. He hears. Anyway, shamat is a fascinating word study. And next week we'll take a look at these 30 uses and we'll, uh, just the 30 uses in Proverbs. We won't go through the 1,159 uses. Otherwise, I'd just say, hey, read the Old Testament before next, before next week. That's practically every chapter. How many chapters are there in the Old Testament? Well, there's, a, there's 1,189 in the entire Bible. 
And the Old Testament's about 70% of the Bible, so I don't know how many chapters there are in the Old Testament. But 1,158 uses means pretty much every chapter is going to have something, okay? Hear and do not forsake. We'll pick up on this next week. The, uh, the biggest thing is to hear. The biggest thing is to be a disciple, to be a student, to be humble before God. Because if you're not hearing, how can you live? If you're not learning, how can you live? Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the book of Proverbs. I thank you for this class. And Father, it's always been a special class from life of Jacob to life of David to life of Christ. And now it's, uh, now it's Proverbs, Father. And I and, uh, thank you for the blessings of what you are providing. And I thank you for the, uh, the lessons that we're learning, Father, and that through the Word of God, we, we learn how to live and, uh, because we live to learn. And I thank you for, uh, for this wonderful truth. In Jesus Christ's name I do pray. Amen.